Well, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, I invite you to open up your Bible to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, John 1, 14. I've been a Christian now for some 36 years, give or take. And here's something that I've learned along the way, is that Jesus, Jesus doesn't explain everything. There's some knowing laughs. And I still have lots of unanswered questions about life. I have certain curiosities that are still unsatisfied. And as much as I'd like him to, Jesus doesn't answer all the whys for me. He doesn't give me all the reasons. He doesn't give me all the explanations. Uh, Jesus doesn't always explain every season that I walk through in advance. Man, I wish he would. Maybe you've tasted that yourself. But in light of what I don't know, and in light of the questions that he hasn't answered or the answers that he hasn't given, the things he hasn't explained, what he does illuminate helps me with those things, helps me walk through those seasons when I don't have everything figured out, which I've come to discover that Jesus does the best job in all the world explaining what God is like. And he explains the things that we do need to know about God. In fact, it's one of the core reasons why he has come. It's one of the core things that we celebrate this time of year is that Jesus came to make the invisible visible. That Jesus came, the word, took on flesh and dwelt among us, became human so that he could explain and exegete the Father. What is God? What is God really like? What is God like? Jesus has come to make him known to the world. So for many, maybe even some here in the room, those maybe watching online today, maybe God's still an abstract idea. For many in the world, God is like a cosmic force. For others, he is, he's kind of this disinterested, disconnected being in the sky. Some call him the big man upstairs, the grand designer, even if you buy into the idea of a God at all. Some, because of their past experiences, conclude that God is a, he's the cosmic killjoy. He's out to ruin your fun. God is there to put a quick, swift end as the fun extinguisher. For others, because of their background, they think that God is just pure wrath. He's angry, he's upset, he's harsh. That you could never even spend a minute with him without him just unleashing on you. I have talked to some friends, they find out that I'm a Christian or they find out that I'm a pastor, like I could never come to church. For some, they conclude that God is obsessed with rules, regulations, all things boring, again, if he, if he exists at all. But Jesus has come to make him known to this world, to you, to me. And Christmas stands as this great unveiling of what the divine is, what God is like. 
and it's what I've come to discover about God through Jesus that helps me in those seasons when it doesn't all add up or when I don't have all the answers that I want to or the explanations seem to fall short. Jesus comes to explain the Father to us. So this past month, we have been in the prologue. We've been in John chapter 1. We've talked about a, a handful of things. I'll put this up on the screen. We've celebrated that Jesus is the one and only word. He is the eternal creator God who has a new creation story. Jesus is the one and only light who has come into the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the one and only son and his his goal is to turn enemies into family through this work of the Son. Today we're going to talk about this idea from John 1 that Jesus is the one and only tabernacle. And I get that probably out of all the ones on the list, this is the one that may need the most explanation. Jesus is the one and only tabernacle. So John, the author, wants you to know Jesus who explains what God is like. Here's John chapter 1, verse 14. John writes, again, he's been talking about the Word since the beginning of this chapter, but he says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So in many ways, uh, it's, it's difficult and challenging to understand John chapter 1 without some measure of understanding of the Old Testament. And so I'm sure many of you have heard of or listened to Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. Um, he talks a lot about the Bible operating like a hyperlink on a Wikipedia page. So that when you come to one word that's highlighted, you click on it and it takes you to another page, which you can click on and you can get page after page. That, that's in many ways what John 1 is like. It's, it's hyperlink all over the place. Especially this passage here, John 1, 14 through 18. These five verses, John kind of goes hyperlink crazy. And unfortunately for a lot of us, removed a lot from the original audience and the original context, a lot of it flies over our head. So I'm going to do a little explanation tonight, maybe a little deeper than I normally would, um, because, again, I don't think we are as familiar with our Bibles, especially our Old Testament, as maybe uh, they were in that day and age. Because, but I think that underneath it, when you begin to see what John's doing and the, maybe the, the links that he's referring to, the idea that he's trying to get us to understand and see is so beautiful and so compelling because, again, John wants you to know Jesus because he wants you to experience and know God, like truly. He wants you to understand what the invitation is for us to know the one true God. And so like, like a, a hot knife through butter, John tries to cut through all the stereotypes and the misconceptions, 
all the confusion and the noise. And so I think that in this passage, at least, John wants you to know three things about Jesus and what he explains to us about God. First thing he wants us to know is that Jesus reveals God's prioritized pursuit of face-to-face friendship. That this word becoming flesh, that one of the things that he wants us to know about who God is and what he's like is that God actually prioritizes pursuing face-to-face friendship with us. He, He wants to be near you. He wants to be with you. So in verse 14, John writes, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And maybe you've heard this before, but that word dwelt among us, it literally means to pitch a tent. That the word became flesh and went camping. The word became flesh and pitched a tent, which sounds like, what is he saying? That sounds so weird. That sounds so odd. This is, again, a hyperlink. He is doing something thematically here that is really intentional and really specific, and he's pulling from some Old Testament stories here for us. The idea that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word, it's the same Greek word used to translate the Old Testament Hebrew idea of tabernacle. If you want to translate it in some ways, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Skanao. And what he's doing is he's referencing a story from Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Jesus wants you to know something about God from Exodus 33. So we're going to balance a little bit tonight between Exodus and John because I want you to understand what he's doing here. Here's Exodus 33. So Long ago, before Jesus comes on the scene, before the manger, before the traditional Christmas story, before the word becomes flesh and tents and tabernacles, there was a different tent. So this is in the days of the people of Israel and their Exodus story. God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And what would happen in that era and in that day is that Moses used to take a tent and he would pitch the tent some distance away, and that tent was called the Tent of Meeting. Ah, the Tent of Meeting. John is picking up on this theme. It's the place where humanity would go to meet with God. Here it is, Exodus 33, 7. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting, which was outside the camp. Again, John's pulling this theme in. There's a part of the Hebrew story that there was a place he would go, the tent of meeting. What happens in the tent of meeting? Next verse, verse 8. It says that whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, the presence of God, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Beautiful scene. The tent of meeting was there outside of the camp. Moses would go. The pillar of cloud comes. 
And everyone is excited, like God's visiting us. God is coming to speak to Moses. And they themselves would fall down and worship because God had come to visit them in the tent of meeting. It's fascinating. As the pillar of God would descend, God would come to meet with his people and they would worship in gratitude. But the best part of the Exodus 33 story to me is this part, this verse, verse 11, the next part. In that tent of meeting, it says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I love, I love Joshua here. It's like Moses leaves, I'm just going to stay here. But in the tent of meeting, Moses got this opportunity to engage God face to face as a man talks to a friend. I don't know what you think of when you imagine God. you believe that he would actually want that kind of a relationship with you? Face to face. In friendship. I love it also, as John grabs this story, and this word and this idea, and pulls it into John 1. Where is it in the Gospels where Jesus calls his disciples friends? It's not Matthew. It's not Mark. It's not Luke. It's John. John captures Jesus saying, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. This is a loaded statement. The word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. Jesus came and pitched his tent like Moses used to pitch this tent. What's God like? Is your, is your first thought, oh, of course there's a God, and he wants to meet with me. Of course there's a God, and he wants to draw near to me, that he wants to have proximity with me, that he wants to have intimacy with me. Oh, yeah, God really desires to be my face-to-face friend. He wants to spend time with me. He wants to be in my presence, and he wants me to be in his presence. I'll be honest, that's not often how I was raised to consider God. And I love understanding and emphasizing God and his holiness. It's not to discount his holiness. It's not to discount our sin. But God, through the word, his son, came and dwelt among us to pursue us. To pursue face-to-face friendship with us. This is what God is like. What a great Christmas story. The second thing that John wants you to know about Jesus revealing, explaining God, not only does God have this prioritized pursuit of face-to-face friendship, but Jesus reveals God's glorious character of good or goodness. Again, I think that John does a lot of Exodus in this. He pulls Exodus 33. So right after that whole story about the tent of meeting and Moses speaking with God face to face like a friend, verse 12, 
Moses has this conversation with God. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider, too, that this nation is your people. So M- Moses, and having this experience with God, he, he keeps wanting to pursue more. He's like, I want to know you. I want to know your name. I want to know your ways. I want to know what you're like. Show me more of who you are. Oh, and consider these people, too. They're your nation. Yes, you speak to me as a friend, but I want to know you more. And the conversation continues then, verse 14. And he said, again, this is God saying, speaking to Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So then Moses says, please show me your glory. Again, a remarkable conversation between Moses and God of this idea of I want to know you more and I need favor in your sight and, and don't send us if you won't go with us. I need your presence. I want to be with you. And then at the end of it, Moses is like, okay, show me your glory then. I want to see your glory. And I won't read all of what happens in the next section because it may be too long, but you can go and read it for yourself. But what happens is when Moses says, show me your glory, God basically says, you can't handle my glory. If I showed you my glory, it would kill you, it would blow you away. So here's what I'm going to do, is I'm going to let you see my backside. Here's how it goes down, Exodus 33, 19. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. It's interesting. What what did Moses ask to see? I want to see your glory. God says, okay, I'm going to show you my goodness. I want to see your glory, because you can't handle my glory. I'm going to show you my goodness. And then what does Moses see, which I'm not sure how he saw all this, but he goes on and he sees God's goodness, and he sees God's grace, and he sees God's mercy and compassion, and he sees God's name. Sometimes I wonder if we've been confused about God's glory, about what it's really all about. His glory cannot be divorced from his goodness the goodness of his character and his grace and his compassion and his mercy and his being slow to anger and abounding in love. That's what God wants you to know and see about what he's like. Again, I know a lot of times our understanding about God gets formed through our experience with people, especially our parents, especially our siblings, especially our family of origin, especially our friends at a young age. And we draw conclusions about God based upon our life experience. 
I share this Exodus 33 because I think it ties back. Moses, or, uh, John has been grabbing Moses in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34 back into his story. And as, as John tells the Jesus story, what does he say? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Now, in Jesus, we see the glory that Moses was longing to see back then. We see the embodiment of God's glory in his goodness. Jesus reveals God's glorious character, which is good. I think that Exodus 33 story rings into John 1. You piece it together. Now, humanity gets to see the glory of God and live. It's Jesus in the word, in Jesus. John's saying, we actually saw the physical, tangible, hands-on character of God. And Jesus makes the invisible visible. Jesus makes God real to the world. What is he like? Look at Jesus. That's what he is like. Is God a force? No, he's much more than a force. Is he distant? No, he draws near. Is he angry? Is he obsessed with the rules and regulations? Is he boring? Is he cruel? Is he hard to talk to? Jesus takes on flesh and he is born. And now we get to see in real flesh, in living color, on planet earth, in embodied form. This is what God's character is like. And, and, and read the gospel. It is fabulous jesus is marked by authority authority he his teaching holds weight his teaching makes people stop in their tracks and think but not only does he have authority it's different kind of authority because he's marked by goodness he is marked with sinlessness and Jesus is kind to people. And Jesus is compassionate. And watch his story. He seeks those who are on the margins. He welcomes children. He honors women. He eats with lepers. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He overturns the tables of injustice. He restores sight to the blind. He parties with sinners. He associates with foreigners. He opposes the religious. What is God like? What if he's even better than you could imagine him to be? What if he really exists and he is defined in his glory? And the expression of his holy character is a goodness and a mercy and a compassion. And what if he is dying for you to know him and experience him as he really is? But often our preconceived notions get in the way. John wants you to see Jesus so that you can understand what God is like in his goodness. As John continues to write, what does he say in verse 14? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is what God is like. The marriage of grace and truth. We live in a world that often separates 
grace and truth and makes grace and truth fight with each other, Jesus is the full embodiment of grace and truth. Grace, unmerited favor, undeserved love, and truth. Like, like for realsies, like reality, true reality, what is substantially true, what is in accordance with what in essence is true. And it's not grace over truth, so you don't care about what it means or what it says. or what, No, the actual substance of what is true and real, married with a compassionate, undeserved favor. That is, that is glorious. And that is sweet. And Moses is like, God, show me your glory. Like, it's great that we talk face to face as friends. And it's great that you said that you've shown me favor. And it's great that you say you're going to go with us. Show me your glory. And John's like, oh, we saw his glory. It's Jesus. It's the embodiment of grace and truth. The last thing I want to point out from this passage that Jesus reveals God's relentless commitment to grace. He is the persistent God of the second, third, fourth, and on chance. Verse 16. So as John kind of summarizes and brings this prologue to a close, He says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace stacked on grace. Exponential grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus reveals God's relentless commitment to grace. Again, he brings Moses back into this. Like Again, this is an Exodus 33 and 34 hyperlink back again. What happens in, as that story continues, Exodus 33, Exodus 34, again, there's that engagement that Moses has, show me your glory, and he covers him up, and he shows him his backside, and he declares his name and who he is, and then God gives him the law. Because in the middle of this story, Exodus 33 and 34, God gave them the Torah the first time. And Moses didn't even come down from the mountain yet, and they had built a golden calf and broken covenant. Right? It, was, it was the marriage ceremony. Torah says, let's get married in covenant. And they were still on their honeymoon, and they broke the covenant. Law came through Moses. So in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses goes back up the mountain to receive Torah a second time. It's in that time where God says, you can't see my glory and live. He gives him the law. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And here's where we see, and even in the Exodus story, this mixture of grace and truth. The truth of the matter is, is that Israel had sinned and rebelled and broken covenant and stood rightfully deserving God to stamp them out. They had sinned. He did have the right. If, he, if they tried to experience the fullness of his glory, they would not live. But even in Exodus, there's grace. There's covenant. And he gives them the Torah to point them into the way of life. And he finds a way to cover them. He covers Moses and he covers his people. And he gives them a way in which they can still keep in relationship with God, though different than God intended or wanted it to be. Because God, again, desired intimacy, closeness. And yet Israel's persistent sin kept putting distance between them. But this may be one of the most important things about God that Jesus explained in his life is that this God does not give up on humanity. Because there's truth. It doesn't back away from truth one bit. There is a way that is life, that is truth. It brings life. There is sin. There are consequences to sin. But John wants you to know, Jesus wants you to know, that God does not simply give up and walk away. He has not done that through the entire story, even when sin enters the world with Adam and Eve. He closed them. Puts clothes on them. Covers them. And on through the story, where there is sin, God's grace abounds. And Jesus pours out God's grace. That, that's, that's John's best attempt at language to explain. We encountered this word who became flesh and dwelt among us and, and invites us. He becomes the new tent of meeting that we would experience God face to face. He is God's glory made manifest among us. And he is, and he's like, John's like, uh, this is what we experienced, grace upon grace, grace upon grace, God's grace. God is relentlessly committed to grace toward you cost of his son. Jesus is the very embodiment of grace and truth. He not only explained it with his words, he demonstrated it with his life. Jesus is the best explanation and embodiment of God's relentless commitment to grace. So you begin to put the whole prologue together and you get quite a story, quite a revelation. That he is the word. He is the creator God writing a new creation story. He is light. And some of us are still living in darkness. But the darkness won't overcome him. He is life. And he is the life and the light of men. He is truth. He is grace. He's come to earth to bring the tent of meeting out of a desire to speak to you face to face, to call you not just his creation, but a son, 
and a friend. Not on your own merit, but on his merit. Not because you kept the rules or went to church or had a mom or a dad or a granddaddy or a grandmother who did Christian things. Not because you were born in the United States. Not because you voted a certain way. Not because you had a certain mask stance or vaccine stance. This is, this is what it's based on. Faith and trust in the word of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. To all that receive him, who believe in his name, have the right to be called children of God. Do you recognize him? Will you receive him? John certainly hopes so, and I do too. And like I said at the beginning, there are plenty of things I don't know and understand. I wish I could stand up here with my expert hat, hat on and answer every question in the universe. I got questions. There are things that are unexplained. There are some whys in my own life I would love answers for. But I may never have those answers. What I do have is the explanation of God in Jesus. And I invite you even tonight to hold up the questions that you may have. The concerns or the head-scratching puzzles that you're living in right now. And would you offer those up to the Word made flesh? And maybe lean into what he reveals about God to you. That God in Jesus has come to meet with us as friends. That he passionately pursues face-to-face friendship and desires that we wouldn't settle for anything less. That he has glorious character of goodness. He is good. He doesn't give up on humanity. He is slow to anger. He is patient. He is the marriage of grace and truth. And he loves to give grace upon grace upon grace. You may think you've gone too far for God. You have not outsinned his grace. He invites you back to the cross. He invites you back to himself. He invites you to turn respond to him he's not given up on humanity at times I have he's not given up on this created world this is my father's world one day new heavens and new earth he has not given up on our bodies he was willing to take on flesh forever he hasn't given up on you or me or us. In that pursuit, he was willing to become a tiny, innocent, speechless baby, fully dependent on his mother and father. What a crazy plan. To bring God's glory and goodness and love that much closer, to make it real and known. Grace upon grace. Let's pray. 
Lord, I believe that each one of us have a picture of God that needs tending to. And it's been shaped through experiences and stories and wounds and words. And so, Jesus, we are grateful that you would come to make the Father known, to explain what he's like, that we may see glory and know goodness, receive forgiveness, be restored. So, Lord, we would ask, even in these days leading up to Christmas, may we never lose awe and wonder at all that you've done. And in those places that need correction, that need to be realigned to what is true, to those places that need healing, to those areas of sin that need grace, may we be quick to confess and agree with you and receive again grace upon grace. We pray for those maybe even here tonight or watching online that have not yet come to experience a relationship with you yet. They have not yet confessed their sin and turned to say, I follow you, Jesus. I believe in you. But may even tonight be a night of decision for them to receive, to believe, to follow, to engage you on your terms tonight. We celebrate this season the fullness and the wonder of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.